0: Good morning. Today's scripture is Matthew 22, verses 1 through 14. Jesus spoke to them again in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. He sent his servants to those who had been invited to the banquet to tell them to come, but they refused to come. Then he sent some servants and said, Tell those who have been invited that I prepared my dinner. My oxen and fattened cattle have been butchered, and everything is ready. So the servants went out into the streets and gathered all the people they could find, the bad as well as the good, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to see the guests, he noticed a man there who was not wearing wedding clothes. He asked, how did you get in here without wedding clothes, friend? The man was speechless. Then the king told the attendants, tie him hand and foot and throw him outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are invited, but few are chosen."
1: All right, thank you for reading that uplifting and encouraging passage from the Word of the Lord. Okay, morning, everybody good? All right, okay. Um, okay, okay, okay. okay. <laughs> it's my like filler word that I use. Um, glad you're here, my name's Tommy, and uh, I'm the pastor here. And uh, we've been going through the book of Matthew for a very long time. Um, this is a continuing conversation that Jesus has been having with the the, uh, the spiritual leaders of Jerusalem there, the uh, the holy city of Israel, um, gathered um, in the temple courts around there. And um, he's already told a parable very similar to this. He basically has a message for them that is this thing, this whole thing, temple thing, is coming to an end and there is a new thing that is replacing it. Um, so um, he tells another parable here that is similar but different. He's going to shift the focus from from speaking to them, to now kind of communicating to all those he has just brought in. Uh, Remember, he brought in the blind and the lame into the temple, and they weren't allowed to be there. They've never been allowed to enter into the city, and he's been healing them, and he's been making disciples of them over the last two days. Um, Excuse me. I think I already already wore my voice out today. I got a long journey ahead of me. Um, Okay, so he's there gathered with them, and he's healing them, and he's teaching them, and now he's going to speak to the, the elders of Israel, but he also has a message for those who have just become his followers, because sometimes those who have just been welcomed in uh, see those who have gone off the rails, the rich and powerful who have gone off the rails, and they, they kind of lose their influence over God's people, and sometimes those people who, who know that the people at the top have been doing it wrong, sometimes they enter in and they feel like, okay, so we are doing it right, and they get a little smug. Right and they get a little um, you know when you start to feel enlightened, maybe I mean I know a lot of people sort of have have gone through these phases where you become sort of enlightened and you become a little smug and you begin to try to enlighten everyone around you it's super annoying by the way <laughs> do that um, you can't you you can 't force people to think things they don 't want to think okay that's what i have that's the little word of wisdom I have found over the years so um here we are in this passage today, there is another um, sort of parable here. It's, it's okay, so some, some scholars argue that this is two parables put into one, um, the part at the bottom with the clothing, and we'll get into that and why people think that. Um, but in the meantime, we're going to start right at the beginning here in verse 1 through 3. We're going to take this in little chunks, and this is going to be very sort of heavy today. There's a lot of material, um, and it's going to be like a bit of a seminary class, all right? It's like, like watermark like 301, okay? So... Um, And at the very end, we'll sort of bring it all together. So we're going to start here, but we have to start with prayer. Um, So let's do that. Let's ask for, like, sort of, um, for God to help us be present and here and not distracted, shall we? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this place. Thank you for everyone whom you have brought together into this room this morning. Um, I don't know what everybody's going through. I don't know if they're rejoicing or suffering or mourning or or afraid of what is coming, or regretting what has has gone in the past. Um, Wherever we all are, I pray that we would be here as equals together. Um, Brothers and sisters, uh, by grace, and pouring that grace out upon each other, I ask that uh, you would help us right now to be very present with each other and with you, to listen, to have hearts that are moldable and changeable. Um, Prepare us now for whatever you have for us to hear. All of us, every one of us. I pray that, that as I speak this morning that I would remember the things that I've studied this week, that I would communicate clearly, that I would be present myself, and that, uh, and that we would sort of uh, feel what you're doing and kind of just go with it. Thank you, Father. In your name. Amen. Okay, here we go. Jesus spoke to them again in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son, uh, and he sent his servants to those who had been invited to the banquet to tell them to come. Now, um, let's talk about... Table fellowship for a second. I've talked a lot about this. Um, uh, it's something that you have to understand that is, is very much a dynamic in the Gospels and in the really the writings of Paul as well. In the first century, um, it was an honor culture. It was all about who had more honor and who had less honor and how you get more. Because the amount of honor that you had determined how you lived in the world. It determined how many people you could sort of control and, and how many people would listen to you. Um, how well you would live, it determined jobs that you could get, it determined um, places you could go, parts of the city you could enter into. Even parts of the temple um, began to be sort of wrapped up in this honor system. Um, and you could gain honor by doing great things, um, or by giving monetary gifts, or by being a great orator, being a great speaker. Um, there, there are several specific ways that, that you could gain honor in society. And there's all kinds of ways that you could lose it. Um, if you sent out an invitation, for instance, and it was rejected. Um, everyone noticed and everyone saw your honor get a little bit depleted. Um, if, uh, if someone insulted you uh, and you were suddenly in the public sphere and someone insults you and you suddenly found yourself, uh, oh, my, my honor right now is being depleted in my presence, uh, people would look at you and say, what are you about to do? And there was constantly um, sort of duels, sword fights, deaths um, that would regularly happen in the streets um, centered around the honor code, the honor system. You know, we look back and we see these things like duel, pistols at ten paces, right? Um, and that is what was left over in the in the 1700s or in the Elizabethan period. That was like sort of what was left over of of like sort of this ancient honor system. Um, it was it's what ran society here in um, in Rome. So he sends out um, the king sends out these invitations. Um, Everyone wants to sit at the table of the king. The greatest way you could gain honor was table fellowship. Sitting at the table with somebody who was higher than you. Raise your status, okay? Um, It was was a huge gift and a huge compliment saying, uh, you should be more influential in society. So the invitations from the king go out for a wedding feast that is being held. And the people who already had a lot of honor received the wedding invitations, right? Um, By the way, Poor people, people with low honor, um, would never, ever be invited to sit at the table with a high honor, high status person. Um, never, and no one would ever turn down an invitation by a king to sit at the king's table. Uh, if that happened, um, if if you received an invitation from a king, no matter what you were doing, you dropped everything you were doing and you went. Um, no questions asked. Uh, so, Jesus tells this story here, which is quite shocking. Uh, the story basically goes, the king sends out the invitations to to sit at his table and go to the wedding banquet of the king's son. And it goes out to all the right people, and it says this, but they refused to come. And then he sent some more servants and said, tell those who have been invited that I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and fatted cattle have been butchered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. Uh, but they paid no attention, and they went off. One to his field and the other to his business. So these guys don't even care. They're like, I'm, not, I'm just not interested. I'm sorry. But the food is on the table. This was very normal for someone to just, um, they would let you know there's an invitation coming, be ready. And they would likely wear their, um, their wedding clothes or their banquet clothes. This would obviously be rich people because most people didn't have an extra change of clothes in that day. Um, and so they would be wearing those clothes, expecting the calls. So the servants would run out, the slaves of the household, and they would go out and they would say, hey, the dinner's ready. And you would drop what you're doing, close up shop, go home um, uh, and go to the wedding. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his field, another to his business, and the rest seized his servants and mistreated them and killed them. Uh, this would have been shocking a shocking thing to hear and a shocking thing to say. Um, anyone who did this uh, would be considered, um, basically, this would be a challenge. This is a dishonorable act. It's basically... I, I refuse to recognize your honor. It is attack on your honor. Um, it is—it's a vile thing to do. Um, but yet, this happened a lot. Um, this usually happened when people were challenging the king's authority, um, when they felt that they sh- that person should not be the ruler. Um, so, what's basically happening here is this is a huge dishonoring of the king, and it would lead to a challenge between two groups. Um, most of the Caesars ended up being murdered. Most of them. Um, by people who who um, sort of traded loyalty to other factions and said, I think these people should be ruling, and they would charge in. Um, and it would lead to a lot of bloodshed, okay? Um, there's this guy named uh, Gary Birch. He's a, he's a, a, a biblical historian, um, uh, and, a, and, a, and a New Testament scholar. and a, a, Basically, um, he's a historian of the first century. Here's what he says. Honor was like a bank deposit, um, with many people holding a debit card. Everyone could see who was contributing richly and who was depleting the account foolishly. If honor was lost in a manner one could not control, the one would feel a duty to reclaim that lost honor with revenge. Okay? By the way, if you're interested in like studying this stuff, it, it'll open your eyes a lot to... Um, How to read the New Testament. Um, Gary Birch has written a book called A Week in the Life of a Roman Centurion. Very short. It's written sort of like a novel, like a story. Um, And it directly connects to the book of Matthew around chapter 8. A brilliant book, not a difficult read. And once you read it, you'll you'll sort of look at the the first century world of the New Testament in a whole new way, okay? I recommend that book. Um, Now, so what's basically happening here is this is a dishonorable um, insult to the king. Now, Right after, right after Matthew says this in the parable, um, Matthew writes this. And the king was enraged, and he sent his army and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Plot twist. Okay? Um, this is a confusing little piece of, of, of writing here um, for several reasons. First off, it doesn't seem in, in line to fall in line with, like, the mindset of Jesus. I know it's not, like, really something that happened, but it's sort of like a story that he's telling. Um, uh, here's the thing, and this may mess a little bit with your theology. It's okay. It's part of growth. Um, most Bible scholars believe that this passage was added by Matthew. That that it's, it, it's likely Matthew's commentary on something that had happened. And um, let me explain. Um, so, so basically the way this would have gone is, is Jesus tells the story, and then Matthew uses that to explain something that happened in history. Um, Jesus' ministry took place right around A.D. 35. This is the death of Christ. This is the same year right here that we're talking about. Right around A.D. 35. Um, Matthew was writing his book around A.D. 90. Matthew was present. He witnessed these things. But this is a long time span. And the reason he goes to write it down is because he's getting old and he's going to die. This is why the Gospels were written. This is why most of uh, the Scriptures were written. People thought, we're about to lose these apostles, these people who knew Jesus um, we need to gather these writings. Um, we need to have them have some of them tell their stories. All kinds of things. Um, so between this time period, the whole world changed uh, from 35 to 90. Namely, the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. The entire city of Jerusalem was ransacked by the Romans. The, the temple was burnt down. Um, all the Jewish people were slaughtered and the, the ones who were al- alive had to flee. Okay, And the whole thing was burnt down. Most... Modern Bible scholars believe verse 7 is Matthew offering historical commentary on this event. So there's this, uh, it's sort of like the, the, Jesus tells this parable, the king invites them to a meal and they reject it. And they'd rather say he's not king and go about their own business. This is an insult of honor. This leads to obvious revenge and burning of their city. Right. I mean, if you think about it, if you just read it normally, you're like, "Well, the king burned their city. He burned his own city. That doesn't make any sense. Why would he burn his own city?" Um, This is Matthew commenting, likely, on the destruction. He's saying he's basically okay. So imagine Matthew as a pastor with his church, and he's reading the parable, and he looks at them, and he says, "That's why the city of Jerusalem was burnt down." In other words, like, ponder what it means to dishonor the king in your society what would that have meant, okay? And then it just moves on. Like, he doesn't open it up any farther, okay? So, take that or leave it. Most scholars think that. I kind of think that. Okay, so here we go. Um, Moving on a little farther. Uh, Verses 8 through 10. Then he said to his servants, the wedding banquet is ready, but those I invited don't deserve to come. So, go to the street corners and invite invite to the banquet anyone you find. So the servants went out into the streets and gathered all the people they could find, the bad as well as the good, and the wedding hall was filled uh, with guests. So um, the invitation now goes out again. The servants come back. No one's coming. He's like, but the banquet is full. The, 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 the tables are full. We need people. Go out into the streets. Tell everyone. So now we're, we're going out to those The aforementioned in the previous passage, right, the the tax collectors and the prostitutes, um, the lowest of the low in Jewish society. Um, And he says, invite everyone that you see, whether they deserve to be invited or not. I want you to go out to the street corners, invite all these people, just the merchants, the local people, whatever. Um, So now the invitation goes out to them. Okay. Now, something in the honor system has switched. And I want you to understand this. this is, in my eyes, this is the most amazing thing, and it's beautiful. So, uh, in the first century, stick figure time, you ready? In the first century, remember, there's high status and there's low status. Low status, want to come up to high status. Um, how do you get there? Table fellowship. There was something in the first century called charis. It's all through scriptures. We translate that word as grace. Grace. Um, Grace is a word that is oftentimes misunderstood because of some misunderstandings during sort of the medieval period uh, with the reformers and stuff who, who thought grace was something um, specific that, that is very separated from ancient Second Temple Judaism. Uh, and here's what I mean. Um, grace is an invitation that comes from a higher status person to a low status person. Karis. We translate it as grace. Um, it means gift. Uh, but it for the last really couple centuries it has been thought last few uh, probably five or six centuries it has been thought of as sort of just this gift that you get and it ends with you right um, and that's it and there's no response it's just a thing that you receive you're like great I got this what you do to get that absolutely nothing awesome um, what do you have to do in response absolutely nothing Like, just stay exactly as I am and I have this thing now it's like fire insurance it's, but I didn't pay for it so somebody else did it's sweet. Um, And that's sort of how they talk about it. But in the first century, grace was not like that. Um, The idea of grace was very simple. Someone of higher status invites you, they give you a gift, which is an invitation into a relationship. Um, The invitation then is is seen as something, oh, you are inviting me to share in your status. In other words, you're you're inviting me to gain more honor and status myself. You're gonna lift me up. Um, And then... And then what happens is the customary response is to proclaim the glory of that person. You will see this all through scriptures, proclaim the glory of the Lord. Um, The king has offered you a seat at the table. This picture is everywhere. So um, the king is offering you a gift and your response is very simple. Um, Proclaim the glory, um, speak of his name, tell the wonderful things that he's done. Um, And by doing this, other people are hearing about the honor and the glory of, of this king and you are moving up as well. So what happens is both of you begin to increase in glory and honor and you both increase together. Um, this never happened with the lowest of the low. This could only be initiated by somebody who was higher as well. Like a, a lower person could never offer grace to a higher person. Imagine, like, you offering to the king, hey, I'd like to invite you into a relationship with me. Like, no thanks. I, I, I don't, no thanks at all. So uh, this is, sort of, this is, this is a, a, a sort of a part of the honor culture. Um, but what's going on here is that the king is now offering this thing to people who, who by far never thought they would ever receive an invitation from royalty at all in any way. Um, and, and notice what it says here. It says, and he gathered all the people they could find, the bad as well as the good. So it's, it was this equal invitation to everyone in the city that the king wants you to sit at the king's table and invite you into relationship. They know what this means. They have been offered an opportunity and a chance a once-in-a-lifetime chance that they would never have again. And this is how Jesus is telling this parable. He says, the king's table has been opened to everyone. The high-status people have rejected it, and the low-status people are stunned and shocked and dismayed even that this has come to them. And so they turn, and they rush in to the temple. So uh, they rush into the, to the, to the king's banquet Hall. So, when we when we read about things like this, what we are seeing here is really, um, this is exactly how Jesus views the kingdom of God. This is how he thinks it should function. Um, the kingdom of God um, has a specific, remember we've been talking about sort of the cosmic hierarchy. There is a king and there are the images of God. All humanity is intended to be the exact same level, the image of God with delegated authority to rule over the earth, to... Take care of it, to guide it into growth, to beauty and 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 uh, a kingdom that is beautiful and wonderful and, and restorative, so all the human beings are, are being invited in the kingdom of God at the same level to enter into this relationship with the king and to serve directly on the right hand of the king over the world. So what Jesus is doing here by, by inviting the bad and the good he 's indiscriminately entering into a relationship. With everyone, and essentially tying his identity and sharing his honor with everyone, regardless of race, of class, of status, slave or free, of man or woman, um, gender or origin, wherever they're from, the king is offering this to everyone. Sit at my table. Eat my bread, drink my wine. All of it is open to you. And to think there are people that have rejected it, and the reason that they have rejected it is because they think that somehow... um, there are, there are places in their life where God has no authority and no rule over. And they reject it. Um, this, my friends, is Jesus proclaiming unreservedly what God intends to do with the entire world. What God has invited us into. This is, this is Jesus' view of how power works in the kingdom of God and in the world. Um, God's people, when they wield any kind of power, this is how it is to be wielded. Uh, wielded? Well, who knows. Um, so... Um, Taking lower status disciples, I mean, picture the disciples of Jesus. Tax collectors, zealots, fishermen, just nobodies who had flunked out of rabbinical school. And Jesus says, I'm inviting them up. Every every other rabbi is going to invite the really, really well-developed students. The ones who know what they're doing, who memorize well and who study well and are good orators. Um, I'm going to take the ones who have all flunked out and I'm going to lift them up. And everyone looked at him as though you are denigrating and tarnishing Sort of the position of rabbi in our society. And then um, Jesus, outside the temple, brings in the, lime and, and, uh, the, the, the lame and the blind into the temple. And they look at him as like, you are tarnishing the temple by bringing these people in here. In other words, there are some people who just don't deserve it. They're not like us. They are sinners and they don't deserve equal status with the rest of us. And Jesus says that is absolutely wrong. They are, by the nature of them being a human being, equal with you in every way. They are. Um, And then there are some who, when Jesus took on female disciples, when when the passage says, um, in the scriptures where it says that, that, that women were sitting at the feet of Jesus, this is an office sitting at the feet of a rabbi meant that you were a disciple and a student and that you were following Jesus. So, again, Jesus had 12 disciples, an inner ring, and he had an outer ring of, of 72 disciples. There were tons of women in this group. Women were funding his ministry. Uh, women were sitting at his feet learning um, as equals with, with the boys. So, when Jesus does this, again, people are like, you are tarnishing um, first off, you're tarnishing and threatening the patriarch. And he's like, absolutely. And he's like, you are, you are tarnishing and threatening um, sort of the, the position of the rabbi. He's like, sure, yeah, that's fine. I'm, power in, in, in the mind of Jesus, in the kingdom of God, is meant to be something um, that you share with those who have less of it than you. That you somehow use that power to lift others up into a position as equals. That is absolutely the work that Jesus is doing everywhere. So when someone doesn't have a voice, the powerful in the kingdom of God should give them a voice and say, what would you like to say? Um, I've been saying it, but they will not listen to me. Well, they'll listen to me. What do you have to say? And then using that to say it. Um, This is how this works. For Jesus, the role of power in the kingdom of heaven is to lift those up who have none, saving those who cannot save themselves, lifting up those who cannot lift up themselves, empowering those who have no power of their own, giving honor and identity to every single human being. Why? Because all human beings are created identically with the same role, the same vocation as the images of God. And when one is fallen, we are all fallen. When Adam fell, we all fell. When Eve fell, we all fell. So the goal is to restore human beings to relationship with God and to bear God's image once again, fully. This is why Jesus is telling this parable. However, the parable does not end there. It never ends with, I'm pouring out a bunch of grace on you, and, there, and, and it stopped. It never ends there. There's always a response, which is why Jesus keeps going with the parable. And it goes like this. When the king came in to see the guests, he noticed a man there who was not wearing wedding clothes. And he asked, how did you get in here without wedding clothes, friend? And the man was speechless. So, a couple of questions. How did all these poor people get wedding clothes, first off? (laughs) Um, And uh, why did one guy not have any? Um, So, all kinds of questions. But remember, this is an allegory. This is a rabbinical teaching. It's a little poetic. This may be a second parable that was attached to another parable. Matthew is not concerned with chronology. He's just not. He's not concerned with the order of things. He's cramming stuff together to make theological arguments about what the church should be doing in the world. Um, so he, the king walks in, and there's somebody not wearing wedding clothes. Everyone's wearing wedding clothes, but one dude in, like, a baseball cap and, like, Crocs. He's like, friend. I love it, friend. Uh, Can we talk? What you wearing? Um, And then, and there's this sort of anger and and dishonor there. Um, Remember, um, this would be a bit of an insult to honor once again of the king. How could you not prepare yourself? So we're assuming for the sake of the parable... That somehow everyone got wedding garments, okay? And entered in and sat down. And this one guy, he even says, how did you, how'd you get in here? You ever watch like the Grammys and wonder that? how that guy? Remember when Bonnie Iver won like best new artist and everyone on Twitter's like, who's that homeless guy that just won best new artist? <laughs> um, valid, valid question. Um, so, uh, the thing about the wedding clothes for the mind of Matthew's audience is, is not very complicated In their mind, um, wedding clothes uh, sort of harken back to this idea in Judaism and Christianity of baptism. When you were entering into the temple, especially new converts for the very first time, new converts to Judaism, Gentile converts, you would enter in on this side of the the baptismal, and you would be baptized, cleansed. You would go naked, and then you would come out the other side, and there would be cloth hanging there, new clothes, and you would put them on. Um, whenever they would write in ancient writings about new converts to Judaism, they would, they would mention things like, oh, they're wearing new clothes or they're wedding, wedding clothes. And this was a normal sort of motif. We kind of lose it today um, because there's really no other use for a wedding dress than a wedding. You spend tons of money on a dress and the rest of your life, like there it is. <laughs> um, can't wear it again. It'd be awkward. And then, um, so the, the Christians as well kind of viewed this the same way. There are plenty of passages in Scripture that talk about taking off and putting on. When you become a Christian, you take off the old clothes, you put on the new clothes. Um, So, in the early church, they were regularly talking about clothing in this way. So, basically, the wedding clothes equal sort of the fruits of a Christian life. Um, The fruits of a Christian life are also constantly spoken of as you're 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 putting off and you're you're taking off and you're putting on. Um, And then they'll just start talking about fruit, fruits of the spirit. Um, fruits of the kingdom of God um, and uh, sort of the fruits of oftentimes a godly relationship and so the wedding clothes in this allegory are are directly a symbol of the fruit of the Christian life it's taking off the old ways, putting on the new let me show you a uh, piece of scripture here from from Paul, he says therefore as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness and humility and gentleness and patience bear with each other and forgive one another Uh, if any of you has a grievance against someone uh, forgive as the Lord forgave you um, and over all these virtues, okay, so imagine passages like this. Read this in your mind in light of, of the honor code, okay? This is directly pushing against the norm, norms of society, a passage like this. No, if someone insults you, just have you tried forgiving them? We don't have to fight for our honor. We don't have to do this kind of stuff. Um, and and over, all these vir- over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together, and perfect unity. So when this, when Matthew's audience is reading these parables and they read about someone coming in without wedding clothes, they're really their mind's going to go back three paragraphs earlier to when Jesus is talking about fruit, and they're going to say, "Oh, I know, I know exactly what this is talking about. I know exactly what Jesus is saying. He's talking about the fruits of the Christian life. He's talking about the ways that we are supposed to enter in. It's an allegory for fruit, um, and then it gets a little." A little violent again here. It says, Then the king told the attendants, Take him hand and foot and throw him outside into the darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are invited, but few are chosen. Now, I know you have been trained. Evangelicalism has trained you to read every passage in the Bible as a passage about heaven and hell. This is not a passage about hell. And gnashing of teeth in the scriptures is anger. Um, weeping constantly is described as um, people losing um, things that, that they hold dear, like power and um, Babylon. In Revelation, when you read about people weeping, they're, they're weeping because um, there is a judgment of fire roaring over Babylon, and they're out there watching their city burn to the ground. They're like, our city, our kingdom, because Jesus' kingdom is now being established and all these other things fall down. Um, you don't have to read everything that way. Um, so there's people outside that are mad because they are not in the banquet, and they're really upset. And there's other people who are sad because they had honor and they lost it. Um, And now they don't have what all these other people who have come in and replaced them do have. And he says, this guy doesn't deserve to be in here. Tie him up, throw him out with the other people who who are angry and crying and weeping and upset because they're not in here. And why are they not in here? Because they didn't bear the fruit and it all begins to come together. They didn't bear the fruit. This is exactly what Jesus said about the, 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 the people running the temple, the elders, the chief priests. He says they don't bear the fruit of humility and reconciliation and restoration. They don't love people. They don't pour themselves out for people. They are not a voice of grace and mercy in the world. They are not working to set things to rights at all. They're working to build their own power and influence. They're working to build sort of this, if you put it in the modern context, they're working to build a megachurch instead of building um, a a, a massive society of of unity and restoration led by King Jesus. That's what they're doing. Matthew's audience reads this. They, They know exactly what he's talking about. They know why this is happening. They know why someone is being thrown out. He says, this person received the grace they received the gift, the invitation of the king. And it just stopped with them. And then they just walked in. They did nothing to prepare themselves. They did nothing. There was no response. There was just, I received the invitation. Absolutely, I'll sit at your table. And you just walk in. And everyone else has this sort of humble, like, they're, they're awestruck. And they're like, I received an invitation from the king. I, I am, I'm going to be a part of this thing. What do I do? Well, I need to clothe myself. I need to clothe myself adequately the right way. I need to bear fruit. My life needs to begin to align with the things of God. How many times did Paul say, um, um, take off the old, put on the new, um, live up to the calling that you have received as Christians? Um, The main idea here is that, yes, the invitation to the table comes about by grace. But this is about what happens after you receive the invitation, and it is a call by Matthew to his people in the church to ponder, Art, are you growing? Are you changing? Are you aligning yourself with the things of God? Or have you just said, I believe something, I have received something, and it sort of ended there? It's a warning. It's what it is. I also want to address uh, verse 14 here. Uh, For many are invited, but few are chosen. Oftentimes this is read in sort of a, a Calvinistic way. Um, uh, and we sort of take all the passages about chosen, and we assume they're all talking about the exact same thing. Um, let me clear this one up. Uh, invited is the word kletoi, which basically it means it's a general invitation to come. Chosen is the word eklektos, which means a longer-term invitation to stay and learn. So here's what this means. You send out the invitation. This is very rabbinical. You send out an invitation. Someone receives it. And they come, and they see. And then there's the second invitation to go deeper. Uh-oh. Seminole Heights. Um, it's an invitation to go deeper and take part. Someone's sitting on their keys right now. I know you are. Just checking. Uh, it's an invitation to go deeper in this. So it's basically like, yes, you have been invited to be a disciple. This, this discipleship always happened in two stages. Um, a, a young, The discipleship was in, everyone was invited to come be a disciple. And at the age of 12 or 13, those who have really applied themselves and taken it seriously, they are the ones who kind of... Receive a second invitation. Now let's go deeper. I want you to follow me for a while. And you're going to learn my ways. And you are going to take part in this whole thing. This is not, a, again, this is not about heaven and hell. This is an invitation to become disciples. That's exactly what is going on here. So when we read this whole passage, the way in which we come to the feast, the way in which we come to the... Um, to sort of the wedding table, if you will. The way in which we clothe ourselves demonstrates the spirit in which we come. This parable has everything to do with the spirit in which we approach um, our God and our faith and our community. Um, There are garments of the mind. There are garments of the heart, garments of the soul, garments of expectation, garments of humble penitence, garments of faith and reverence. And these are garments without which we really ought not approach God. When we gather together, is it just sort of this, is it... Is it just sort of this, yeah, I'm in. And I'm, I, this week has, I have just been a tragedy of, of human life this week. Doesn't matter. Here I am. We're good to go. Um, or when we gather together, is there a bit of preparation? Is there a humble rel, uh, um, sort of, is there, is, there a, is there a humble presence in your heart that, like, I have been invited? Into this thing that is so much bigger than me that has been going on, the plan of God has been moving forward and forward and forward. The, the fact that I have the, this information, this knowledge of Christ is a gift and it 's a blessing. The fact that I have been inviting in the, the fact that I have been invited to actually take part and do the work. Um, for God and alongside of God. I mean, too often we gather as God's people with no preparation, no prayer alignments, no thoughts of self-examination. We just enter in, we start singing songs about grace, about a grace relationship that has been poured out on us, and we spend the rest of our time rejecting the actual invitation to make him our king in the day-to-day moments of our life. The people in the upper echelons of all society that take part in atrocious, atrocious things and then say, yes, I'm a Christian. This is what Jesus is talking about in this parable. But it's not just that. It is also you and me who have tons of places in our heart where we refuse to let Jesus actually be king, where we are afraid, we're terrified of what will happen when we actually give Jesus control of this place of our life or this part of our life or this part of our life. Um, I grew up in a family where it was always stressed. like, no, we prepare ourselves when we, when we pick up the scriptures and read it. Because when we read the scriptures, we are approaching the word of God. Jesus is the word of God, by the way. Um, Jesus is alive. Um, Jesus is the word of God. This is over and over again reiterated in scriptures. He is the final word, the one that we need to study and understand. And so there was always this constant um, push like, when, when we approach the scriptures we are going to approach the word of God. Be prepared for that. Don't read it flippantly. Read it with a serious mindset. You you want to interpret it as correctly as you possibly can, Um, which is difficult, but this is what we do. And even to this day, my dad calls me every Sunday morning at like 7.30. And sometimes I miss the call, but every Sunday morning he calls at like 7.30 and I'll look and I'll, I'll have a message and I'll be like, oh, and I'll play the message. And it's my dad praying into my voicemail, for me and for you, for all of us, that we will be prepared to change, to repent, to listen, to grow, and to rejoice, that we will adjust the trajectory of our lives just a little bit. There are, there are members of the prayer team that come here in the morning and pray over each one of these seats and for whoever might be sitting in them, that you will understand and not have this arrogance. Yes, it's, it's, it's good to point out people, powerful people, who control massive swaths of people and say, they've gotten it wrong. Great. Fair game. Do that. But don't think because you can point out other people who have gotten it wrong that you have gotten it right. There are plenty of chances for you to get this wrong. Um, there is this humility with which we come. And we examine how we have been clothing ourselves throughout the week. Humility, grace. Um, are we a joyful people? Do we understand what we have been involved uh, included in. Um, Grace is an invitation. It is not a forceful push. I am not a Calvinist. I don't believe God is just grabbing people and throwing them into heaven and grabbing other people trying to get in and throwing them out. I I don't, I know that's a harsh uh, sort of uh, criticism of it, but like, grace is an invitation. You have been invited. The invitation has gone out to you and you receive it. And the question is, now that you are aware that you have been invited, what is your response? Is your life at all growing and changing? James, in, in, uh, um, in the book of James, there's, there's plenty of ponderings by James of, of how do we know that we are actually a part of this thing, that we're actually sitting at the table of the king, that we are actually followers and citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And he says, well, it's not, it's not complicated. You look back at your life and there should be this track record of you becoming more and more aware of the kingdom of God in your own life and the lives of others, what God is doing in the world around you and turning and, and opening up to it and taking part in it. You should be able to look back and see that you have grown. And if you can't, he kind of says, you should be terrified because you may one day open your eyes and look around and see that everyone's wearing wedding clothes and everyone's bearing fruit and you are not. Um, life is not long. Um, I, I, I've read a sermon uh, a couple years ago about someone, a pastor delivering his his final sermon. He had cancer and he was, he was passing away and he stands up and he says, I thought I'd have a lot of time. I, I thought I'd have another 50 years to pay back the debts that I owed, to become the person I always wanted to become to, um, to really learn to manage my life well, to really learn to love people and forgive people, to be less bitter. There's all these things I wanted to become. And I always pictured myself, by the end of my life, by 50, say, I'm going to be that. He says, but I'm, I'm now 35, and I, I don't have the time anymore. And I don't have time to become these things that I always wanted to, to clothe myself in the way of Christ. He says, had I had I realized how short life actually is, and it is incredibly short, had I realized how short life is, um, I would have closed myself every single morning and as much fruit as I could. And no matter how many fruit I lost during the day, pick them up, pick them up back tomorrow and just staple them back on. I, I want to live in the path of Jesus. Um, this is what this is not, this passage is not a critique of what happens to people who are not included. This passage is not meant to be a descriptive sort of like, here's what happens to the people who are out. This passage is always, always meant to be read as a warning to those who are in. Examine yourselves. Examine yourselves. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer writes about this concept called cheap grace. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the one who who stood up against the Nazi regime um, and ended up, and ended up, uh, he was a pastor and a priest in the church, uh, he ended up being executed, being hung by a piano wire by the Nazis right before the war ended um, for getting wrapped up in some things that, um, well, it doesn't matter. But he, he, writes, he writes about this concept of cheap grace. In his, in his incredible book, The Cost of Discipleship. And here's what he says. Uh, grace is represented as the church's inexhaustible treasury from which she showers blessings with generous hands without asking questions or fixing limits. Grace without price, grace without cost. The essence of grace, we suppose, is that the account has been paid in advance and because it has been paid, everything can be had for nothing. That grace, that grace alone does everything, they say. And so everything can remain as it was before. This is what Jesus is talking about. When the invitation comes, you cannot stay as you were before. Everything must change. Every part of your life must change. God is interested in those places that that you you, you you've you've hidden in boxes and stuffed in the corners of your life. His intent is to find them and to become the king of those things too. Okay, um, why don't we spend some time in communion? Our communion uh, servers, you can go and gather the elements and spread around the room. Um, and uh, why don't we ponder today before we approach the communion table. I mean, this is, this is a living parable of what Jesus was talking about. We are about to approach the table of the king, which ends up being the body of Christ, broken for us the blood of christ poured out for us um you may not have anything to bring to offer but the invitation goes out and all is asking to start with is to proclaim the glory of the king so as we approach the table today why don't we prepare our hearts why don't we ponder what this actually means the weight of it all we should never flippantly approach communion so let's pray Let's prepare ourselves and let's take, all you have to do is come on up take a piece of bread, rip it off, dip it in the wine, eat it. Uh, This is the ancient Christian sacrament um, by which we all proclaim. I have nothing to bring. I come to the table to be fed. The broken body of Christ was broken for you. The poured out blood of Christ was poured out for you, for your salvation, for your healing. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this place and these people. Guide us. Make us whole us to clothe ourselves constantly in holiness and righteousness let us be a people who stand out um, who bear fruit a city on a hill that is bright and shining in your name amen take some time talk to jesus